The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Park Howell, the author of Brand Bewitchery, How to Wield the Story Cycle System to Craft Spellbinding Stories for Your Brand. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I produce this podcast to help us both keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow faster by taking a sales-based approach to marketing. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. And if you're one of the many, many listeners who's left a review on Apple Podcasts, I want to drop a little something in the mail to thank you. Details after the interview. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Park Howell to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Brand Bewitchery, How to Wield the Story Cycle System to Craft Spellbinding Stories for Your Brand. Park Howell is a 30-plus year veteran of the advertising industry who has guided hundreds of purpose-driven brands and thousands of people who support them to substantial growth. But everything changed in 2006. And I'm now going to read from page 17 in the book's introduction. In 2006, after 25 years in the branding arts realm and a decade running my own agency, Park & Co., I realized that advertising as we knew it had stopped working. While brands used to own the influence of mass media, technology leveled the playing field. The masses had become the media. They took control of our brand stories, and now they own them. So I went in search of an answer. I found an anecdote was the antidote. Brands had to become story makers by giving their customers the opportunity to become storytellers. So Park now consults, teaches, coaches, and speaks internationally, helping leaders and communicators rise above the noise of the attention economy and be heard using the power of brand and business storytelling. And interesting fact, Park once subjected himself and his wife to a Hawaiian timeshare pitch 
in order to study the seller's persuasion techniques. Park, congratulations on brand bewitchery and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Douglas, thanks so much for having me here. Nobody, you were the very first to pull out my anecdote of the Hawaiian timeshare sales experience. Yes. And as I often do when I'm reading an author's book, I will make jokes to myself and then I will very often post them on LinkedIn on the weekends. So I wrote in the book where it says that about you doing that. And evidently, you're still married to the woman you dragged into that timeshare pitch. Can you believe it? We yeah. got a whole bunch of free stuff for signing up for the timeshare pitch. So it's a benefit too. So uh, where that was in your book, I wrote, this author is a masochist. But you talked about how you were studying Robert Cialdini's uh, six uh, aspects of persuasion, which were, were are in his book, uh, Influence the Psychology of Persuasion, uh, published in 1984. And I believe that's the best-selling business book in Amazon's history. And he's also your uh, fellow Arizonan. That's right. But <clears throat> I met you years ago at Michael Gass's Ad Agency New Business Conference. And it's funny because uh, just today, as we go to record this, I published my fourth interview with Bob Hoffman, the ad oh, contrarian. Really? He was yep. the keynote speaker there and you were there. And that's what I got to meet you. And I had already known about you because Michael Gass was always talking about you. And I, I was really uh, happy to read in the appendix of your book, your story with Michael Gass and how he helped uh, both of us. But I was really um, excited and I guess sort of uh, nostalgic when I read that part that I, I already quoted about how we were both, we both been in the business about the same amount of time and we were both ad men and then everything started changing. And I often say that it must have been like a travel agent 25 years ago <laughs> saying, wait a minute, what's going on here? What's this? Why are we not getting commissions from the airlines anymore? And what's this internet? People can't make travel plans without us. And I went through the same thing. And I often joke that if advertising still worked well, I'd still be doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're so right. I mean, it was such a shift happening with not only technology, but with the global recession that kind of knocked us all upside the head. We were coming out of that, and believe it or not, that episode where we met in Nashville with Michael Gass's conference, I believe was 2015, October of 2015, and you were the MC. Yes, that was a, a rare display of poor judgment by Michael It Gaspin. was so much fun. I thought, <laughs> I really like this guy. This guy's got it working, got it going. And, you know, Michael Gass, I can't thank him enough. He not only, I, apparently I was one of his first clients. He worked with me back in 2008, I think it was. Uh, but he's just become a great friend ever since. I, I've had him on my show a couple times on Business of Story. And uh, I can reach out to him anytime. I've referred him over to other people. I, he's just a just a splendid gentleman to work with. He really is, and I I just I love him to death. And uh, I've gotten to see him several other times. I spoke in Birmingham last year and got to have dinner with him. And he's uh, you know he was a great example of that expression: when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And I think mm -hmm. I was about the 80th client, 80th mm -hmm. agency he'd worked with, and. Uh, it was really a milestone, really made a big difference. And for agency folks that want to learn about him, I'll include a link to his website 
in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com, but it's Michael Gass, Feeling New Business. So, Park, uh, the word brand, branding, brands, and storytelling are two very important terms for marketers, but I often caution marketers about using those words around civilians. And when I what I mean by civilians are people that are not people who are not in the marketing department. Because as I often talk about, marketers have a bit of an image problem. And I think these are two really important concepts that are very misunderstood. And unfortunately, there are a lot of civilians who, because they don't understand this, they just it's not a it's not an intelligence thing, it's just more of an, an awareness an understanding issue, I think they can be rather uh, dismissive. So during this interview, I will occasionally take the point of view of the logical business executive uh, who might be suspicious or uninformed about this whole storytelling and branding stuff. And I do that in part because in your book, you talk about very logical executives who push back uh, against a lot of these things and all the the work you've done over the years, and I had to, I had to laugh when you said that your dad uh, was the president of a construction company, and I was wondering, was he also one of those very logical people? Well, he was a civil engineer, so my dad was an interesting guy. He, um, he passed away a couple of years ago from Alzheimer's, and he was ninety-one and lived a long life. And he was a little Norwegian Viking. So he would take us on the most amazing adventures that if you took your kids on today, the state would probably take your kids away from you. Mm. And he was just always into adventure. So on one hand, he had the slide ruler mind of a civil engineer. But I can tell you, Douglas, he was one of the most creative people I've ever been around. He ran a heavy construction company up in Seattle, worked everywhere from Alaska down to Arizona, building dams, bridges, tunnels, really a lot of the work around water. And he would often take us out to the jobs, even when we were little kids, and talk about, give us advice. Like they had a little cave in and they had to go back in and do the shoring up. And we were out there on a Saturday and we were walking around and he was just making sure everything was right. And he says to me, I said, wow, dad, what what'd you do here? And what happened here? And what did it here? And he said, you know, son, do something, even if it's wrong. And what he meant by that is not wrong morally. Do something in action will hurt you faster than action. So he said, we tried to do this and it didn't work. And then we tried to do this and it didn't work. And I, that's when I asked him, well, why'd you do that? He said, well, you got to do something even if it's wrong so you can learn what's right. He was just creative in every aspect of life and building. And so he was really this marvelous balance between the left and right brain logic and emotion. Okay, well then let's take him out of the example list. <laughs> Maybe a lot of the <laughs> engineers that. <laughs> that worked for him because yeah. I think that people still need to be careful using these terms. Now, I think there's probably nothing more powerful than the correct use of storytelling, but I think it's just very misunderstood. It's not something that you make up. It's not falsehoods. It's a very specific uh, approach and there's quite a bit of yeah. uh, science it's behind this. 
they're true stories about the real world impact you make. And that's really what you're trying to say. I'll give you an example of, I think, where you're going with this. I created a, a, a program, a communications curriculum for Arizona State University in their executive master's for sustainability leadership program. And I taught it for five years. And we were working with executives around the world from Philips Electronics to Cummins Diesel to American Express to NGOs and whatever. And it was a 12-month MBA program. I taught the communications portion of it, and I taught them my storytelling techniques. I called it sustainable storytelling using the story cycle system. Anyways, when we were creating that course, ASU brought in experts in sustainability and engineers and climate change, and there were probably about 35 of them sitting in the room And our job was to bounce our curriculum off of them before we launched it to get their input because we were trying to create executives that they could then hire and put to work. And so we were looking for the holes in our program, whatever. There was four of us professors, one in strategy, one in global context, one in leadership, and then me in communications and storytelling. Well, they go through the first three professors and each of us have about an hour to share our curriculum and then get feedback. I'm number four. I get on the afternoon after lunch and they're all sitting there looking at me and they've been here for a day now. And I get introduced as the communications professor. And Douglas, you could see most of that room settle back in their seats, cross their arms and completely shut down to me. And I kind of looked around and it caught me off guard. And I started introducing myself and what I was doing and how I was using story. And I started looking out in the crowd and they were looking at each other. And you could see that they were like, this is such BS. So I finally called it out. And I said, what's happening? What's, what's going on? And they, someone says, oh, you're the soft skill guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I go, the soft skill guy. Well, I guess if you want to call communicating, pulling people together, sharing their stories to build a much bigger entity and brand and business, then I guess you could call that soft skills. But uh, that's where you get the logic playing against the emotion. And all you got to do is then ask the audience, when was the last time you bought anything because of the data? And they will look at each other and say, yeah, you know, you're right. We buy with our hearts. We justify that purchase with our heads. Are there engineers in the room who said, yes, we buy with our hearts? Yeah. I mean, and then you just, wow. all you have to do is point to a consumer product. Yeah. Yeah. When you bought, when you bought your truck, your Ford two fit, you know, F-250, did you buy because of the data or did you really like the color? <laughs> no, I did. It. I bought it because I wanted to impress my hunting friends. Exactly. Now, I, I, yeah. don't, I don't have a, a Ford F-250. So. For all you salespeople listening and you marketers, I want to share, before we go much further, my favorite quote from the entire book. It was from, I believe, a former client of yours, Trevor Hill. Oh, yeah. He said, in sales, all you do is find the hurt, amplify the pain, and heal the wound. Let me repeat that. In sales, all you do is find the hurt, amplify the pain, and heal the wound. So in this book, uh, this 10-step process you have, that's what you learn how to do. Is that fair? It's very fair. And if you think about it, Douglas, you can break that down to the three-act structure of story. It's a beautiful, And when he told me this way back when, I wasn't really studying story, so I didn't recognize it till way later. When he told me it, I'm like, wow, that, that, that is such a great way to define sales. 
But if you can go act one, act two, act three in a story, what you want to do when you tell stories, the setup, problem, resolution. Well, the setup here is, okay, what's the context of the problem I'm solving for on behalf of my client? You want to find the hurt. Now that I've got that, but what's the real problem? How does it get even worse if they don't do something about it? Or maybe they think what they think is the problem is not the real problem, but from your expertise, you need to get them to be thinking over here. So you've got to amplify that pain. That's act two. That's the problem. That's now you're on the journey with them. And then act three is simply the resolution. Solution, heal the wound. I just think it's the most beautiful way to talk about sales and put it in the three act structure, problem, solution, dynamic of storytelling. I love it. Let me just quote from the beginning here, from the introduction. One thing is certain, life is chaotic. Storytelling is the remedy that we seek to create meaning out of the madness of being alive. I have found, as you will too, that when you craft and tell your compelling brand story, you will increase your influence as a leader, grow your organization and your people, and evolve a successful career into a significant one. But you have to understand the magic to cast the spell. That's what drives me to share with you what I've learned about the applied science and bewitchery of storytelling. It's taken me nearly a decade to write, edit, test, toss, capture, and share the proven story cycle system in this guidebook. And I can promise you one thing, it works. I will show you how this 10-step brand story strategy framework provides the solution and way forward to any and all the personal narratives above that you may be telling yourself as well as any others I didn't list. I don't call it a proven system for no reason. This book is chock full of case studies that demonstrate in detail how others have successfully activated the story cycle system. And you'll be able to do the same. Plus, as a useful bonus, when you apply each of the 10 steps of the story cycle system, you will develop your storytelling skills and grow as a confident and compelling communicator. You will not only dial in your brand story, but you will grow from an intuitive to a masterful and intentional storyteller. So you go on, Park, to say the story cycle is distilled from the timeless narrative structure of the ancients, inspired by the story artists of Hollywood, influenced by masters of persuasion, guided by trend spotters, and informed by how the human mind grapples for meaning. Park Howell, please unpack that. All right. Wow. Who wrote that? That was pretty good. What I found, this began back in 2006 when I you know, knew I had to make a change and that we were lucky our middle child, our son Parker, was going to film school at Chapman University in Orange, California. And I told him, he, he went from 2006, graduated 2010. And Douglas, he's been in Hollywood ever since. He's a director. He does a lot of virtual reality work. And in fact, is about ready to launch a premiere on Twitch, a Dungeons and Dragons live stream premiere, just packed with animation. It'll blow your mind. But I tell you that because he wasn't just dabbling in film school. He's all in film career. But while he was there, I said, and I was trying to find the answer. How do we, you know, ramp up our advertising, branding, and marketing so we can hack through the noise and hook the hearts of our audiences out there? I said, send me your books when you're done with them since I'm paying for them. Yeah. I, I, want, I want to know what does Chapman teach you to prepare you to be a competitive storyteller in the most competitive storytelling market in the world, Hollywood and L.A.? So he did. And he would not only send me books, he would send me video lectures, audio lectures, speakers that came in. So I got kind of a virtual film school less, you know, course alongside of him. 
And that's where I found Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and the ancient power of story. That's why it is inspired by the ancients. It's inspired by the hero's journey. I simply took that and mapped it to business. And so I took the 12 to 17 steps of the hero's journey, depending on who you're listening to, and created the 10-step story cycle system. And then I tested it here. It was like a science project on my very first client. And I can tell you, it worked beyond my wildest imaginations. That client, Avin Cite Tafoya, Adelante Healthcare, a community health center here in Arizona, launched their new brand narrative using the story cycle system in 2010. And they have grown by 600%. And she'll be the first one to say it's because they got their narrative in place. Mm -hmm. So that's where it is inspired by the ancients. Hollywood. They use it everywhere. One of my favorite books, if you haven't re- uh, read it or your uh, listeners haven't, is Christopher Vogler's The Writer's Journey. And it was Vogler was one of the first people to identify the hero's journey in Hollywood. Even though people were writing and producing to it, they weren't doing it intentionally. They were doing it intuitively. And this book now, I think it's in its fourth edition, is a brilliant uh, review and exploration of the hero's journey for writers, but marketers and salespeople can use it too because it is like a it's it's like an instruction manual for life. So I looked at that, and then you mentioned Robert uh, Cialdini earlier. Influence had that big impact on me. Well, I realized that a lot of the work that he was talking about is embedded in story and storytelling. And I just, like all these worlds started coming together from different perspectives, from different people in story. And I just saw it gel beautifully in commerce, in branding, in business building, in leadership communications. Um, That's where that whole litany comes from. And it ultimately comes down when you look to the brain science. Our brains are hardwired to make sense out of being human beings through the stories we digest and how we then uh, connect the dots through those stories to try to understand what we need to do today, what we need to do tomorrow, who are we going to do that with? Well, let me ask you a question, Park. Uh, Related to that, you write that your brain automatically fashions a fiction to make sense of meaningless data. Explain Mm -hmm. that. Have you ever heard of the Hyder Simmel study? Well, from having read your book, yes, that was the first time. Now you have. Okay. It's a great video. You can go online, uh, YouTube, type in Hyder, H-E-I-D-E-R, Simmel, S-I-M-M-E-L. I think there's just one L in it. I'll include a link to that yeah. uh, on your show notes. You're going to pull up the a film that they made back in 1946, and it only lasts about a minute, 15 seconds. You're going to see really very crude production value, black and white figures, circle, square, triangle, floating around. There are no faces. There are no voices. There's no audio whatsoever. It's edited to maybe suggest something. But other than that, it's just data. It's just stimulus coming at you. And what I do is I show this. I learned about this through Jonathan Gottschall's amazing book, The Storytelling Animal, How Stories Make Us Human. And I have then used this same Hyder Symbol study in every single keynote I give, masterclass I give, and I show the audience the Hyder Simmel video. And it doesn't matter where I am in the world, you hear the same things. So when I ask people, what did you see? They totally make up stories. They say, oh, I saw a, a father trying to keep his daughter from dating a bad guy. I saw a bank robber. I saw domestic violence. I heard, one time heard 
uh, a librarian say, I saw kids chasing butterflies with butterfly nets. I mean, it's great. One lady said, it's just a metaphor for thinking outside the box. So you hear all of these completely fabricated stories, but the point I make to them is that, did you see how your brain automatically made up a story to try to create meaning and context out of the absolute meaningless? There is no story happening here, but your brain, you can't fight it. I think Heider Simmel said in their study, out of 140 participants, only one would sit there and say, I saw nothing. I just saw, you know, structures floating around. Mm-hmm. So the, the point being, Douglas, is that if we as communicators are not crystal clear in what we communicate, and if we have PowerPoints riddled with bullet points. Looking like eye charts. Looking like eye charts, graph stats, chart, it, our brains are not hardwired for that. So what will happen is our audience will leave with a story that we did not intend for unless we intentionally tell them a story. And nature abhors a vacuum. So you either need to put that story there or one is going to be made. So Park Howell, if stories are so powerful and effective, why don't we use storytelling more to grow our businesses? Let me ask you this, Douglas. When were you, you've been in this business a long time. I think you and I have been in this world a long time. When was the last time anybody offered you a storytelling class? Probably never. Exactly. I've read some books about it. Did you ever have any core storytelling courses from the eighth grade on? No. And I was an English major. (laughs) Well, there you go. Imagine if you were an MBA. Well, I have one of those too. Yeah. (laughs) Well, there you go. And how do you avoid the MBA apocalypse? You're becoming that MBA zombie where what do they do? They teach you stats and facts and put into context and charts and blah, 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 and trending and blah, 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 blah. Nobody teaches you how to communicate that in the context of a story so people can actually understand what you're talking about. Right. So we don't use it in business because people show up in business as young people, and I'm as guilty of it as anyone else. We want to look smart. We think people are rational. We don't want to sound stupid. So what are we going to do? We're going to jump over to our left brain, and we are going to try to do all those things versus being a little bit vulnerable, putting yourself out there, sharing a true story that actually reflects who you are and what you stand for and how you are there to help. No one has ever taught this stuff. And that's when, that was my big pivot away from the ad world when I literally shut down my agency in 2016 and focused on the business of story full-time because I saw such a tremendous need in the business world is to connect people through the power of story. So oh, absolutely. And, and Park, that is part of the reason why I think that marketers need to be careful using that term because it is so poorly understood. It is. And I don't know that they have to go out and use it, quite honestly. I think we use it in the crafting of a brand narrative and internal communications and get this pulled together. We don't have to tell people we're telling them a story. In fact, I coach people never, ever, ever use the S word. Yes, that's right. I remember Paul Smith and uh, his book, Sell With a Story. That was one of the big takeaways was whatever you do, don't say, I'm going to tell you a story. And why is that? When you first hear that, what do you think? Reactants. I I feel like, well, I don't know. I think um, it might not be true. But I also may not take it as, as seriously. Or you might think I'm manipulating you. You, you hear that too. Or, or I don't have time for a story. Just launch into a story. I'll give yeah, you just an example. Yeah, just the facts, ma'am. 
Yeah. I, and you saw this in the book, but I love sharing this story because I thought it was such a wonderful illustration of it. Um, and that's why I included it in the book. I was in Melbourne, Australia a year and a half ago with my wife, Michelle, and we were out there. Were you on a timeshare presentation? <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, I was down in Auckland, New Zealand. I spent two days working with their social media conference there and did the keynote address and a big workshop. And then we went up to Melbourne because Michelle's um, old college roommate and a gal she grew up with here in Arizona has been in Australia for 30 years. So she's basically an expat. We were hanging out with her and her boyfriend, who at the, I don't think they're together anymore, but he um, at the time, a year and a half ago, 39 years old, or no, I'm sorry, 59 years old uh, from Sweden. His name was Per Olaf. And he, as a young man, when he was 22, he sailed his 24-foot boat all by himself. I think it took him six to eight months from Stockholm to Melbourne. You know, so pretty much around the world by yourself at the age of 22 without GPS, without, you know, just dead reckoning and so forth. Anyways, really character. We're sitting there having a glass of wine and in his wonderful Swedish accent, I wish I could recreate it here because the story would be even better. He was looking at me and he was dismissing story because I was telling him what I do. Story and business. Oh, that's bullshit. Oh, we don't story and business. And and what he did for a living for many years is sold high-end German car washes to Australians. So he would sell them and service them. And he had a whole car wash business, did quite well with it because he also had a 42-foot uh, racing yacht that I got a chance to go on racing. You know, the very last day we were there out there in Victoria Harbor. Anyways, so I said, all right, Per, um, did you ever have that time like Tom Hanks in Castaway when you know, you're on the deck of your boat and you're at your wit's end and like a whale comes up and winks at you and, you know, flips some water on you, high fives you, and then all of a sudden everything's cool. And he laughs. He goes, no, 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 of course not. And then I just let a really long pregnant pause happen. And he goes, well, there was that one time. I go, oh, what's that? And you could see actually Patty and Michelle, my wife and her friend, both lean in. Well, I was down in the Galapagos Islands, he said, and I was had to navigate this channel. Of course, I had no GPS because this was in early 1990s, and uh, or actually 1980s, and uh, <clears throat> I was dead reckoning, and it was getting dark, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to weigh anchor and hang out here tonight, and I will tackle it at the, the fresh new morning sun so I can get through it. So he goes down into his berth, goes to bed, and then he says, have you ever heard that really freaky noise, screeching noise that dolphins make in the wild? And I go, no, actually, I never have. He goes, well, I woke to that. And I went up on deck, and here I had about eight dolphins racing around my boat, screeching at me. And I go, what was happening? He goes, well, I looked up. It was about five in the morning. The sun was just coming up, and I realized the tide had gone out way more than I had anticipated. And if I had hung out there for another 30 minutes, me and my boat would have been impaled on the lava rock. And I said, do you think these dolphins were warning you? He goes, well, what else? So I said, what'd you do? He goes, well, I pulled up the anchor and off I went and I you know, sailed through and made it. And I go, wow, that is a pretty amazing story. And I looked at his girlfriend, Patty. I said, have you ever heard that story before? She goes, no, I've heard all of his stories. That is incredible. So then I look back at Perry and he has kind of the shitting grin on his face. And I go, what, what are you thinking? He goes, I just realized that every major cell I ever made with a car wash 
always was after I told a story about sailing. Had nothing to do with business. I had always told a story about sailing, and then they would buy the car wash. And I go, why do you think that is, Pear? And he goes, I have no idea. I said, because in the telling of those stories, you are demonstrating who you are, what you stand for, your courageousness, your industriousness, your can-do attitude, your ability to take on the world, and then some. If I'm going to invest in a high-end, expensive German car wash, aren't you the exact guy that I would want on my boat, on my crew, to make sure that it worked and would be there to service? And he goes, I never thought of that before. And I said, that is the power of story in business. And Park Hal, is that, is that why he ended up breaking up with Patty? I don't know. Why. Are you responsible for that? I I hope not. Okay. I hope not. Maybe well, you know. Maybe it was my very poor sailing skills, and we lost the race out there in Victoria Harbor. My last night in Melbourne. Maybe that was it. Okay. Well, one other question I want to ask, and then we're going to jump into a couple of these different steps of your story cycle. All right. That's all right. You betcha. That is. Um, can you explain what you mean when you quote Robert McKee, who said? Our conscious mind is the PR department for our subconscious mind, where, where all the real decisions are being made. Our conscious mind is the PR department for our subconscious mind, where all the real decisions are being made. Yeah, so Robert McKee, legendary screenwriting coach. And if you ever have four extra days and you want to learn about communication, Go over to the LAX Sheridan when he hosts his unbelievable story conference. You'll be surrounded by 250 screenwriters, and there'll be about three to five marketers in attendance uh, because they were there learning like I was. What does Hollywood know that I need to know to be able to be really good at this? And he that quote popped out of his mouth. And I, got, I thought, he's so right. So we make our buying decisions in our subconscious. And, you know... Cialdini talks about this in Influence and any really great sales book you see is you are trying to tickle the subconscious of your audience. We don't buy with our rational mind. We buy with our emotion and we don't even know we're doing it. And when we make that purchase, what do we do? We now justify it with our conscious mind. So that was just a really interesting way that Robert McKee said, all of our real decisions are being made in our subconscious and our conscious mind is simply the PR department to back it up. So right, why did you right. do that? Why the hell did you do that? But the problem is, in business, especially in B2B, is we try to sell the logic. We try to sell to the conscious mind. And that's not where the transaction takes place. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think salespeople really have to pay attention to. The more you understand story dynamics, the more you have an appreciation for that. And know then how to use that and use it for good, not evil, by the way, to, uh, like I say, hack through the noise and hook the hearts of your audiences. Yeah, I was recently interviewing, uh, well, no, a year or two ago, I interviewed Will Leach, but I had him come back on for Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. And uh, <laughs> I love that title, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that was it was 66 episodes. I've, I've had to pause it for now. Um, my liver needed a break. But uh, I remember in his book, Marketing to Mind States, he argues in, that at least 99% of all things we do, all decisions we make are driven by the subconscious. And uh, there's, you know, all this fMRI uh, data in the last 20, 30 years, it's showing we, they have a much better idea of now of how the, how the brain works. And uh, 
so that's that's very interesting. And it's it's a slower part of the brain, the logical part. But I just the more I learn, the more I have to laugh at people who say, "No, I'm completely logical, and my customers are logical." And I just oh, I just I just want to help them. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, would it be yeah. okay if we walk through a few of the steps that that Let's you uh, you cover? So uh, we'll go roughly in order here, but. The first one is uh, the backstory. So explain what is a backstory? Why do you need one? And what what should you be keeping in mind when you try to develop one? Yeah. So when I created the story cycle system, it was first and foremost a strategy document. It was kind of like storyboarding a brand narrative. So I took those 17 steps of the hero's journey, boiled it down to 10, starting with the backstory, because every story has to have a time and place. What what are we doing here? What's, why are we even starting this story? In the branding world, I use that then as a metaphor to help a brand understand what is functionally is your number one position in the marketplace. What do you do differently and more distinctively than anybody else? And until a brand gets that completely dialed in and really understands how they are different, they can't even begin to understand how they're going to talk about themselves. That and the whole process of the the 10 steps of the story cycle system is the only functional one, meaning it's the one that says like where the tire hits, the the rubber hits the road, how do we functionally operate that is different and more distinctive than our audiences? So to give you an, or a competition, so to give you an example, I'll just use myself. Um, in the branding world, advertising world, and I call myself, you know, uh, I'm a brand consultant. Okay, well, there are millions, literally millions of brand consultants in the world. So how am I different and distinctive? Why should anybody care about me? I go through the four steps within that backstory worksheet there. I boil down to my number one position in the marketplace, and that is my audience is I help leaders of purpose-driven brands connect with their, their audiences, both their employees, their customers, and the communities they serve through the proven story cycle system. So that is my backstory, very much in a nutshell. But now I've got something that nobody else has, my proprietary process. And there are a lot of brand consultants and all kinds of consultants that have their own proprietary process. And my point to them is build on that. Make sure that that's your platform. Make sure it works and you can deliver the goods and build on it. But until they do the backstory and really work hard to understand what makes them different and distinctive than all other competitors, they're going to have a really hard time pulling their story together, crafting a story that anybody's going to really care about. Yeah, there's a reason why that's the first one. But you know, Park, it occurred to me that if companies only did that first exercise... Yes. <laughs> they would be heads and shoulders yes. uh, above their competition. And... The things in your book are like other aspects of marketing where you don't have to be perfect. If you just go through this and you talk about, you go through the book, you go through, you've got all the templates, the exercises, go through there, you will be better for having done it. Even if you're just a a little bit better, (laughs) you're still going to be 10 times better than your competition. I want to go to the next one about heroes. And I remember years ago, there was a a quote from Ann Handley. Uh, who, who's the author of the best uh, Wall Street Journal bestseller, uh, Everybody Writes. And I remember years ago seeing a quote she had, which was, make the customer the hero of your story. And so, you know, I'm a slow learner, Park Howell. I uh, took me a 
few years and a few more books about storytelling to understand what she meant. But <laughs> let's pretend I didn't know that. Okay, so the hero of your story, Park, it's it should be all about you and your company and its products, right? Yeah. <laughs> no. So but it, that's it, what everybody seems they think. To. And that is the very first major paradigm shift that takes place is not the navel gazing. This story is not about you. Your hero are your customers, are your audiences. And by the way, I interchange customer and audience because every audience, you were trying to sell them on something, you know, your way of thinking, a joke or whatever. And every customer is an audience. So I use those interchangeably. But your audiences, your customers are the center of your brand story. And I use the term hero because it comes right out of Joseph Campbell. And I know I was listening to your show with Kendra Hall the other day and other story folks out there say, oh, people aren't really heroes. And I don't really want to, you know, well, I think, heroes, yeah, but I, it's a she metaphor. understood that. But I think that my sense was that people are confused that they're, you're supposed to be on some sort of, uh, they're, they're, they were, they're wearing capes. Yeah. No, it's a, it's simply a metaphor. Yeah. Nothing yeah. more that you can read into it as much as you like. And I like using it because it makes the audience focus on that. You could call them protagonists, but believe it or not, I'm surprised at how many people don't know what the word protagonist is. <laughs> they know what hero is. Yeah. So yeah. It, you place them at the center of your story. And it, in, in my process, I say, just, I want you to identify and prioritize your top three audiences and then, you know, create a persona around them. So you know who exactly that person is and you're going to place them at the center of every brand story you tell, because it makes you have to understand and empathize where they are on their journey and what they're trying to get out of life so that you know how to help them to achieve that. Yeah. And I think it, it, this is not scientific, but it seems like 90% of companies are talking about themselves, their products, their people, and a, if you talk about how uh, talk about your customers and the journey they've gone through, uh, people then I see their body language change when you start to tell someone a story. Let's move on to the next one though. Stakes, yeah. and again, this all takes me back to what I said was my my uh, favorite quote from the book: "In sales, all you have to do is find the hurt, amplify the pain." and heal the wound. So explain um, stakes and, uh, and the role that they play here. And I, this reminds me of in sales, when you are talking to a prospect and you help them realize the cost or implications of non-action. Is that related to stakes? It totally is. Totally is. So um, a lot of brand companies will start with, well, what's the problem? And I'm like, I want to move the problem downstream to stakes a little bit. I want to first get them clear on what they do in their backstory and who cares about that. Mm -hmm. Now we focus on the audience. See, it gets your brand to stop focusing on yourself. You get to focus on yourself in the backstory. The rest of it then is your audience until you get to chapter six. Stakes are about what is going on in your customer's life? What are you solving for? And I like to look at it. I, I really like that idea of what do you stand to gain by buying into our uh, opportunity? And what do you stand to lose with inaction? Mm -hmm. So I've got a, a quad split there because I like to add two more things to that. What does your audience wish for? Now, again, this is emotionally. 
They emotionally want peace of mind. They emotionally want confidence. They emotionally want to look smart, they, whatever that is. Yeah, and, and an example of a non-answer, an incorrect answer would be revenue optimization or <laughs> yeah, lowering like costs what? or you yeah. know, these more logical sounding things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no. I'm Let's afraid start if with we, steak. Yeah. I'm afraid if we don't do this, Douglas, I'm going to have to cut two-thirds of my workforce. Right. Okay. There's a wish there to get rid of fear. And then what does it look like? What do you wish? Well, I want the optimism. I want the positivity that we're moving forward. Okay. I want, you know, you can, as a storyteller, you can remember that. And then you back that up with the want. So what do I physically want to buy? Maybe it's coaching. Maybe it's whatever that product is you're selling me to help me fulfill my wish. But again, brands are so focused on what they make they make the big mistake of telling stories about what they make when they should be telling stories about what they make happen in the yes. person's life. Connecting yeah, it to that, that wish. Times. That's another great yeah. one from the book. We are in the wish-granting business. Every salesperson, every brander is in the wish-granting business because people are buying with their emotion and they're justifying their purchase with their heads. Yes. Now, the next one you call disruption, and it brings to mind my biggest competitor and probably that of most everyone who is in sales, which is no decision, <laughs> no action, status, <laughs> yeah. stick with the status quo. Talk about how to disrupt your audience and trigger their will to act. And I'm most interested in hearing about, get ready, acronyms. I want to hear about the UVP and the ABT. The UVP and the ABT, beautiful. All right. So as we talked about, all narratives, powerful narratives and story are in three-act structures. Find the hurt, amplify the pain, heal the wound. The story cycle system, although it's got 10 steps, is set up in these three-act structures. So the first act is setting the stage with your backstory, your customer, your 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 audience, the hero of the journey, and what's at stake for them. Without really compelling stakes, the rest of it doesn't matter. But quite often, the compelling stakes aren't enough. So you move into chapter four, and that is disruption. And that comes from a couple different places. We got disrupted with coronavirus. Let's take that as an example. Mm -hmm. I came into 2020, I think, as most people did, is what a cool year, 2020. Uh, what a great new decade. This is going to be marvelous. We just set the stage of here we go. This is going to be awesome. Boom, disruption hits. We get coronavirus, COVID, and now all of our worlds are turned upside down. And you and I and everybody are acting differently. And there's tremendous opportunities to take advantage of that would never have been there had COVID not disrupted us, something completely out of our control. But there's also disruption in our lives that are in our control. So when I, for instance, decided after 20 years, I no longer want to be in the ad agency business, I disrupted my family's life. Thank God I have a caring wife and said, I'm pivoting away from this. Everyone, you all got to go get other jobs. People said, why didn't you sell it? And I said, because I didn't want to have to be handcuffed to someone for five years. I want to go do the story thing. So, I so when you told her you were leaving the ad agency business, was that before or after you took her to that timeshare presentation? <laughs> it was after. Can you believe it? That's wow. how much she loves me. I know. Man. You can't believe the woman is a saint. Puts up with me. Oh, unbelievable. Um, so you have to sometimes go in and you have to be the disruption in your customer's world. Yeah. But, ch but chances are, if you're selling and you've been invited in because they want to hear from you, there's something happening in the background 
that is already disrupting their life. You just have to find the right story to trigger their will to act. And that plays with the wish, the want, and the will that you read about in chapters four and five, disruption and then leading into obstacles and antagonists. So it's about creating that disruption. And sometimes you have to be there rattling your saber to even make that disruption more painful. That's where the amplify the pain starts coming in, both chapters four, first identifying the disruption, and then chapter five, the villains, fog, and crevasses that now your customer is up against, that you can help them identify and let them know that you are the ideal guide to help get them through that, through your unique product and offering. So explain what UVP and ABT are. So the unique value proposition. This is when you start to now um, humanize and get more interesting. Find that tagline, find that creative twist that helps people understand what it is exactly you do. And that's based off your backstory, your audiences, what they share, care about, and the disruption happening in the world. Your UVP, like mine, is to help people, leaders of purpose-driven brands, excel through the stories you tell. It's disruptive now because we've been disrupted in the world with technology, and it is so hard to cut through the noise and be heard. So it's everyone, I think, is pretty common lexicon, the unique value proposition. The ABT, on the other hand— Wait, wait, let me just quote from the book. The secret about your brand story and UVP is that they are not about what you make, but what (laughs) you make happen in your customer's life. Your UVP is the spark— that ignites the humanity in your brand story. Real quick on that UVP, let me give you one example. Red Bull. What's you what's Red Bull's UVP? Unique value proposition. Something about giving you wings? Yeah, we'll give you wings. Oh, emotional. It's not about what they make. They make a crappy tasting, high octane soda, essentially. Yeah. And if that, I, if I wanted make. to drink that stuff, I would just drink NyQuil. But they don't talk about that. They talk about what it does. It, you know, it, it gives you wings. So that's a really good example of a powerful UVP. Airbnb's got another great one, Beyond any, uh, Belong Anywhere. Beautiful story-based uh, UVP. The ABT, on the other hand, is a story structure. It's a fundamental story structure called and, but, and therefore. I learned it from a fascinating guy who's now just become one of my best pals in storytelling, Dr. Randy Olson. He was Harvard evolutionary biologist, PhD evolutionary biologist, goes on, gives up tenure, goes to USC film school, graduates, produces three documentaries on climate change, global warming. But I think more importantly, has written four books to help teach scientists how to communicate using the power of story. One of his things, his core thing is this this concept called and, but, and therefore. It's the perfect three-act structure of this happened, and it's important because of this, but here's the problem we're solving for. Therefore, here's the solution. Think of it going back to Trevor Hill's definition of sales. Find the hurt. That's the and statement. But amplify the pain. That's the middle. That's the, that's the uh, um, what am I trying to act to? Mm-hmm. Therefore, heal the pain. So, for instance, let's go back to this analogy we had, ta- had talked a little bit earlier about COVID. Here's an ABT. If I, and I use these then to help really focus my theme, focus my communication, and I use it for everything from it, emails 
to PowerPoint presentations, <laughs> to creating brand strategies. And I'm just giving you a, a real quick example here. Uh, we all looked at 2020 with terrific optimism and we're, we're excited about the decade ahead. But coronavirus struck, upending our worlds. Therefore, we are all now navigating this new world to try to understand how we are not only going to survive in it, but you know, thrive after it is over. That's a good example of an and button. Therefore, you're setting up the ordinary world, a statement of agreement using the and, but here's the problem. Therefore, here's the solution. Right. So, listener, I want you to listen for these three words, ABT, and, but, therefore. Set the stage and raise the stakes. Yep. But state the problem. Therefore, reveal your solution. Park, you mentioned uh, just now about villains, fog, and crevasses. Uh, could you talk uh, more about that in terms of antagonists? Why are uh, antagonists uh, important in in helping to frame a story? And, and the reason you say villains, fog, and crevasses is those are the, like the three primary types of antagonists that uh, are in a story. Is that right? No, there's three, well, what I believe in business storytelling anyways. So well, in your the, effort to bring Joseph Campbell's down to business use, it's like those three capture a lot of them. We all come across them, yeah. yeah. You know, and, in, and in business, we have a tendency to leave out the middle of a story. We don't want to talk about the bad stuff, the gnarly stuff that's going on again, because we want to look like we got our act together and we're logical and rational. But I argue you want to bring those in and you have to understand what your audience's villains, fog and crevasses are, as well as your own brand's villains, fog and crevasses. And what I just think of them as three categories. Villains are your internal and external competitive forces. So literally your external, I mean, literally your competition out right. there. Who are they? How are they upending your journey? And what are you going to do to overcome them? And then you've got these villains internally. What are the voices in your own head that are saying you're not smart enough, you're not bright enough? How do you overcome that? Or what are the voices within your company that that rumors are this and rumors are that that you're going to have to overcome? So you want to identify what those are. The next one is, and this right now, by the way, is brand focused. You also want to do this for your customer. So the next one is fog. What are your blind spots? What don't you know you don't know that you have to go and find? And then the final one, crevasses, are what are your performance gaps? How And how are you going to bridge those performance gaps? So take that same thinking where you use it on your brand operationally, and then you move it over and you put it on your hero, the center of your story, and saying, okay, audience number one, what are the competitive forces that they're up against from buying into our product or service? It could be time, it could be resources, it could be literally our other physical competition. It could be the stories they're telling themselves in their head about your offering in the industry. Number two, what are their blind spots? What don't they know they don't know about us that we have to clarify on their terms, not our terms, but their terms. And then finally, the crevasses. What gaps do they think are unbridgeable that we can bridge for them to make us that timely, most relevant and urgent offering in their world? And it makes you look at this it's like a SWOT analysis, but mm -hmm. it takes the logic out of a SWOT analysis and it, it uses that kind of as the chassis, but now it makes you think from a very human standpoint. 
emotionally. Yeah, it's like it sets a SWOT analysis on fire. It does. Yeah. It it, it just because how many times have I, have I my, me or any of the listeners have gone through a SWOT analysis and everyone's like, okay, great, thanks. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like an unlit fuse. Yeah, yeah. It's a strategy, and you know, strategies never happen unless there's an action plan. So think about this as an action plan by first identifying your villains, fog and crevasses, your obstacles and antagonists. And then you do the jujitsu uh, move of using those forces in your favor by demonstrating, in a lot of cases, you're amplifying the pain here for your customers. You don't do this. It's going to get really ugly. Or yes, you could hire that person to do this for you. And yes, they are a little bit cheaper than us, but you know they can't deliver on this and this, but go for it. You know, So it gives you an opportunity around storytelling to really humanize it from your customer's standpoint and help them overcome something. The other thing it does for you, Douglas, is it lets your, your audience know that you understand them, yes. that you appreciate what they're going through and what they're trying to overcome. And it just, it just helps build that brand bond. Yeah. If you can make your customers feel like you understand them better than the others do, uh, the sales are a lot easier to come by. <laughs> Yeah. And and it just it's still so rare, at least in the world I'm in, where if, if, if anything, even the smallest things that demonstrate you understand them. In other words, the the customer says, "Man, these people get me. I'm buying stuff all the time." When a company, you know, uh, conveys something that maybe they understand, uh, you know, what my what my issues are or what my motivations are, or that type of thing. Let me just ask one other thing. We got to because we're running out of time here. But uh, after Antagonist is the mentor, and I, the other books I've read about, it's called The Guide, or the would that be the Obi-Wan Kenobi? Mm-hmm. Why, why are mentors, well, explain what mentors are and why they're such a crucial part of any story. And if you could talk about this uh, brand archetypes, because that sure. really lit my imagination. I even went on to... You talked about which brand archetype you are. I then, of course, had to go and uh, get my credit card out and <laughs> and take the test. And turns out we're we're quite similar. But explain the 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 idea of the mentors and the and the brand archetypes. So now you're squarely in chapter six of the story cycle system, and this is where the brand gets to focus on themselves. They get to think about all right, what is the personality that we show up as in the marketplace, and are we consistent? Or do we are we showing like the civil the eleven uh, personalities of civil out there? We want to get to that consistency, right? And, and you just know, in case at- anyone's wondering, that's not what you want to do, <laughs> right? So in chapter six, I asked them to look, you know, in, deep inside and say, what is the emotional promise? You know, what is that one word that describes what people from your employees to your customers to the communities you serve experience? By working with you, by being around you, what is that? What is that emotional promise? And then the second question in that is, what is the intrinsic gift? Again, it's not what you make, but what you make happen. What mm-hmm. do they physically get by it by being with you that ele- elevates them? And then the third element of chapter six, the mentor, is about brand archetyping. And I use you know Swiss psychologist Dr. Carl Jung's twelve archetype personalities that seem to be everywhere in the world around us. When I was taught branding back in the day, 
it was just inane to me, Douglas, because I was like, I was taught to, you know, ask the question, if you were a dog, what kind of dog would your brand be? You know, and if Thank you, you Barbara magazine, Walters. Yes, you know, and I'm just like, oh my god! This oh, I love that part sense. of the book where because I I I experienced a lot of that. Or, or basically, you, you could have gone off the rails and said, if you were a tree, what kind would you be? Yeah. Speaking of uh, Barbara Walters, but it was like, um, you yeah, you talked about uh, early in my career. I was taught to ask my customers insipid questions like, if your brand was a dog, what kind of dog would it be? What kind of car reflects your personality? How about a drink? Are you a cocktail, a beer, a diet soda, energy drink? This accepted branding process never sat well with me. And then you go on to say, seriously, man, that was nuts. (laughs) It was. And I would be forced to go through it. And I would have clients looking at me like, really? And I just shrug my young shoulders and go, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> well, and, and that takes us back to that perception of marketers that is not helpful. That's why that room yeah. was full of guys uh, and gals uh, with their arms crossed thinking, oh, this is the soft science part. Yeah. This is a bullshit guy is what they were thinking. you yeah. know. And I'm like, no, man, this stuff really works. Um, and so we use these 12 archetypes and you go in and there's some books that have broken out to 32 and 64 archetypes and all these nuances. To me, it's just too overwhelming. We have found that you can really dial in what your core brand personality is by just reviewing these archetypes. You could do it pretty quickly too. And why it's important, Douglas, is as I had mentioned earlier, once you determine what that brand archetype is and your emotional promise, intrinsic gift that you offer, it informs all of your creation, how you go to market with your personality, the look, feel, tone, content, user experience of your uh, website to your marketing materials to even right down to how you answer the phone. So for instance, if you are the explorer archetype, think of Virgin, you know, um, uh, Sir Richard Branson, he's very much with the explorer archetype then by golly, your website and how you interact with your customers better have that explorer edge to it. And by the way, you are also want to be attracting those kinds of explorer archetype customers in because you share the same beliefs and values. They're just looking for someone to help guide them on their own journey. Um, I'm working with a consultant right now that is not only the explorer archetype, but the regular guy-gal archetype, which I think is perfect because he works out of Minneapolis. And it's that good old Midwest mentality. What you see is what you get. Super sharp, really understands his leadership coaching business, but he's also a sailor, ironically enough. And he oh, has you should first introduce him to that Swede. I know. He was a part of my <laughs> Maybe patch things up with him and Patty. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, um, going through it, you really help. It helps you understand when you have your archetype dialed in what your true personality is that is reflective of you, and then just go and look at your materials and see if everything from your website to your marketing even remotely reflects what this actual personality is. Chances are it won't. Chances are it will reflect a very conservative, logic, rational-driven personality when you want to bring more emotion to it and really reflect who you are. And Park Howell, your dominant one is the jester. Yeah. <laughs> and so it says, uh, for an active jester archetype, humor and joy in living is paramount. You see, you easily see the inconsistency, absurdity, and irony of life, but you are not compelled to change the way things are. You may chuckle inwardly 
or you may actively instigate frivolity and laughter, but you revel in furthering the enjoyment of yourself and others. Guess what Douglas Burdett is? <laughs> Jester. I'd say him one. Yeah. We're yeah. brothers from another mother. Yeah. yeah. But but then your secondary and third were completely different from mine, but it was really uh, very interesting. And it occurred to me, boy, if I could have the CEO of a company, or maybe it's a smaller company, the entrepreneur take this, it could <laughs> zero us yeah. in a whole lot faster and not uh, start pushing them in a direction that just isn't going to make sense. So, Park, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? To move from an intuitive storyteller to an intentional one. That's my bottom line, is we all are intuitive storytellers. We, and one example of that, Doug, before I really understood this, we would produce TV campaigns for clients, and we would have two TV commercials out there, and we loved them like our own children. Mm -hmm. And one would pull really, really well, and the other one wouldn't work at all. It was once I studied story, and I would go back and look at those, I go, oh, the one that pulled actually has story structure to it. I didn't know it, but right. now intuitively, the other one was just a creative abomination that we figured we could win awards from. We thought it was so cool. Everybody would get it, but nobody got it. And that was one of my big awakenings that we all are, are intuitive storytellers, sales, marketing, branding. If you want to be super effective out there, you have to move into intentional. And that is just using these three proven narrative frameworks that I've used time and time again and intending to use them, apply them, and nobody will go hide or simmel on you then because they will be pulling away with a story you intended to tell. Great answer. What is one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the many ideas from your book? Practice the and button, therefore, in your emails. So, oh, that's literally. right. You talk about how- Literally, yeah. Email lengths- if some of your clients, they went down like by two thirds or something? Oh, it, here's the deal. When I was teaching this to the execs at ASU, I had no idea of the added value of this particular instruction until they started showing up saying, dude, you have completely cut my email writing by two thirds <laughs> and my people actually understand what I'm asking for now. And instead of these big, long emails where you're trying to hammer out what you're trying to say, stop, take a deep breath, write it down in an and button, therefore, set the stage and increase the importance of why this message is going out. But here's the problem I'm solving for. Therefore, I need you to do this. You can do it and you can cut, you know, 20 sentence paragraphs down to two. <laughs> and it's really <laughs> super powerful. That is the very first thing you can do right now. Do it every day. I call it the storytelling dumbbell, the ABT, because the more you do it, the more your narrative intuition of problem solution will grow and you will just become a way more compelling communicator. That's great. That's great. Set the stage and raise the stakes, but state the problem. Therefore, reveal your solution. And that's Here's actually my, that's the same page where Trevor Hill's quote is in sales. Yeah, all you do yeah, is because it goes amplified hand pain in and hand. Here's the most basic ABT that I have up on my wall. And you, you're welcome, everyone, to write this down. It'll make you think about ABT. Executives communicate and care, but bore. <laughs> Therefore, tell a story. There you go. There's three-act structure in what? Eight words? There's oh. your ABT. Now, if you are a communicator, you're an executive that communicates and you care, there's the stakes, but you might be boring. <laughs> right. Therefore, 
tell a freaking story. <laughs> and that's up on your wall where you are? I have it. Yeah. Just to remind me, because I even default back to blah, 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 that I, after all of these years, still have to remind myself, what is my point? What is my problem solution dynamic that I'm trying to communicate? And how can I use the ABT, this three-act structure, to get me there? And so that's, that's my favorite one of all. Well, Park Hal, if you could take a picture of that, I will share it with all the listeners who go visit marketingbookpodcast.com to see this episode's uh, website page. So what books have most inspired your working career? You've mentioned several in this interview. You mm-hmm. talk about even more uh, in the book, but yeah. which ones have most inspired your work and career? I can tell you the very first one was the one, Jonathan Gottschall's Storytelling Animal. Just absolutely love it. It's a really fun read. He covers the intersection of story structure and brain structure and says the human mind yields helplessly to the section of story. That's how powerful it is. <laughs> just like we talked uh, about earlier. Yeah, it's, just, it's fabulous. The writer's journey is right there. I really like Harari's Sapiens. To me, that book is just a fascinating look. Have you read that at all? No, but I've heard that. Uh, I've heard about it, and I noticed uh, you quoted it in the book, mm-hmm. um, and I marked that part. So I... Yeah, I've I've heard about that book, but I have not read it. I have, in fact, not read all the books in the world. It's a I know you've you've had a few on your plate, but his Sapiens is as he calls it a brief. I think a brief history of humanity. It's an interesting anthropological look, blah blah blah, of human beings and Homo sapiens and how powerful our linguistic skills and our storytelling skills have been to create the most aggressive, invasive species that the world has ever seen. So it's just a really, really fascinating read. And then I'm right in the middle now of a guest you just had on, Rory Sutherland's book, Alchemy. And I find that really, that was a really good interview, by the way. I enjoyed that a lot. And I've been liking his book. And you know, in that book, he makes the same point that we buy with our subconscious and we justify the purchase with our conscious mind. You know, he talks about that. That's basically the premise. So why are we so driven by logic when it's the illogical solutions that quite often pay the biggest dividends. Yes, that book, reading that book was an adventure. Mm -hmm. And being able to speak to him, another adventure. And uh, I'm still thinking about that book. That just was an amazing, uh, an amazing book. Um, So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading besides uh, Rory's? You know, a book that I would recommend that I would never have ever purchased on my own, but was given following a speaking engagement a year and a half ago was Phil Knight's Shoe Dog. Oh, yeah. I've heard about that. I'm not a huge Nike guy. The shoes don't really fit me that well. Um, <laughs> you know, I just, I'm just, I am a just do it kind of guy, but I've always really admired their brand. But talking about brilliant brand storytelling, business storytelling, his memoir is exceptional. There are so many learnings in it, and it, I had no idea that basically Nike was going out of business every month for about eight years before they finally turned the corner and got rolling. And the biggest takeaway I took from that book that Phil says is customers buy belief. They believed that they had the absolute best running shoe, and that running made a difference in everybody's life, not just an athlete's life, that it was that belief that people bought. And I, I just think that's a really powerful book. 
Um, an- another book, another memoir that I think is absolutely brilliant <clears throat> and a lot of business lessons in it. I just recently finished up and I'm going to totally butcher the title on it, but it's from Ben Folds. I don't know if you know who Ben Folds is. He's a pop piano songwriter, storyteller. He's one of my favorites. He gained, gained fame in the early 1990s and is still going strong. And he came out about six, eight months ago with his memoir. And I just loved it because I love watching the guy, listening to the guy. But there were also also many, I think, unintentional business uh, gems within his storytelling that I often uh, recommend that book as well. Is that the A Dream About Lightning Bugs? Yes, that's it. A Life yep. of Music and Cheap Lessons. That's the one. Yeah. New York Times Really, really good book. Oh, wow. Yeah. Thanks for telling me about that. And a fun read. It's It's just so much fun to read. Oh, good. Well, yeah. at, at marketingbookpodcast.com, as I've mentioned before, we're going to include links to uh, your sites and your social media and you, especially your LinkedIn profile. So listeners can find all these things you've been talking about and hopefully they'll uh, reach out to you and thank you for joining us on the show. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Brand Bewitchery, How to Wield the Story Cycle System to Craft Spellbinding Stories for Your Brand. The author is Park Howell. Park, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Douglas, thank you for having me here. And let me know when you fall off the wagon. I would be happy to come and talk about authors and quarantine on cocktails. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who've left an iTunes review, I would like to return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I will drop it in the mail to you. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on this show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of, for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.